Welcome to GradCast, the official podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. Coming to you from the other London, let's start the show. I am your host, Gina Koo. And I am your host, Adrian Bory. And today we have our guest here, Hilary Agro, and she's here to talk Hi. to us about harm reduction, drug use, and the electronic dance music culture in yeah. Toronto. Indeed. And elsewhere also. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it kind of went all over Ontario eventually. But So yeah, so welcome, Hilary. Um, Thanks. Thanks for having me, guys. Maybe we can just... <laughs> so maybe we can start off with the very general question of what your research is on. Yeah, so um, I'm an anthropologist, uh, and I am studying harm reduction um, and primarily MDMA usage, but just sort of all drug usage uh, in electronic music contexts, um, mainly in Toronto and then sort of spreading out from Toronto as well. Um, although it's sort of, I started really focused on the harm reduction aspects, but now, um, based on my field work, which is ethnographic, um, maybe I should explain that too. Yeah, we can. <laughs> um, yeah. So with ethnographic field work, I'm, you know, I'm doing interviews, um, with drug users, uh, but I'm also going to events and talking to people in the context in which the drugs are used so that I'm not just sort of talking to them about it, but also seeing how it happens and, uh, learning about the culture in Toronto, um, which is a very rich, interesting culture based around electronic music. Um, I ended up primarily going to house music events, but I also went to trance music events and psytrance and techno and a whole bunch of different things. Um, yeah, so it started based on MDMA harm reduction with this idea that, you know, there's um, all these festivals are happening and electronic music EDM has exploded into the mainstream and along with that uh, MDMA usage has exploded but um, I ended up looking more at um, sort of festivals that have been going on for longer and people who have been in the scene for a lot longer and um, their kind of drug use yeah. cool stuff that's so interesting. So um, can you tell us a little bit about these events or maybe festivals that you were going to? Um, who are the people that you were encountering? Um, you said that you were looking at, um, at different age groups and, and, and wh um, what the characteristics of people who are using um, these drugs are. Can you tell us a little bit what, uh, about what you've learned so far? Yeah, so um, I think that uh, I'm the first person to do a study of ravers in their 30s. So my average age of uh, participants was 31, uh, and that wasn't my intention because, you know, all of the sort of media uh, insanity about EDM music is talking about young people and their drug use, but um, I encountered a group of people who go to house music events in Toronto, um, and they're sort of in their late 20s, early 30s, or early mid-late 30s, and early 40s, um, and their drug usage is really not problematic. I ended up sort of looking at drug users who sort of, oh, I almost swore, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Have their stuff together. Um, you know, like they, they're really uh, interested in helping other, out other people in terms of harm reduction, but not because um, they ex have experienced harms, but because they have actually experienced profound positive experiences on these drugs. Um, and 
really have control of their usage and uh, you know have things that other people can learn from in the way that they use drugs. That's so interesting. So these people are in the workforce. They're not what you think of yeah. when you think of that stereotype drug user, like a irresponsible, like, I don't know, 17-year-old raver or something. Mm-hmm. These are people who have jobs and children, and this is something maybe that they do for fun or as a release, um, but they're very controlled and knowledgeable. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. And I mean, all stereotypes of drug users are... Uh, based a lot on stigma in the first place. Um, most people, what they consider a drug user is not an, actu- a- an accurate portrayal of what a drug user is. And I also um, am a fan of deconstructing the whole idea of a drug user in the first place because most of us drink alcohol, right? Does that make us a drug user? Yes, technically, but you wouldn't <laughs> think of somebody who drinks alcohol when you say drug user. It's this certain narrative that we have about people who use illicit drugs um, that really doesn't accurately reflect the reality. Um, So yeah, these people, uh, they have jobs, they're in school, they have kids, they're, uh, you know, uh, have friends. They are, by all of the measures that we in Canada like to use as uh, meters of success, which I think are also problematic because I think it's interesting that Uh, you know, even just to describe like, oh, but these people have jobs and they contribute (laughs) to society. That's our meter of being an acceptable person um, is saying that they contribute to, you know, uh, capital. But um, (laughs) I won't go in that direction quite yet. But um, but it's true Uh, to all of our measures of of success in the society. They absolutely Um, are just your average person. They just, instead of choosing to only drink alcohol recreationally, the way most people do, they choose to also take LSD or mushrooms or ketamine or MDMA. Um, Yeah. So the people that you've interviewed, I'm guessing majority do have stable jobs and have families Mm -hmm. and um, their drug use isn't problematic. Have you ever encountered someone that hadn't, that didn't have a stable job or were on the younger, you know, younger, they were younger um, compared to, I don't know, 30, maybe if you've yeah. come across a teenager, maybe, or um, just, so, sorry, just just wondering if there are differences um, in terms of drug use. Yeah, there definitely are. Um, my youngest participant was 18 years old that I interviewed, um, and the oldest was 45, I think, and um you know, it's it's hard to generalize, but there were a lot of differences, and I think that uh, one of the main reasons that the older participants cited for them having good control over their drug use and, and it being a positive influence on their life was that they actually started later. Um, people who said that they started using drugs at an early age usually experienced a lot more problematic usage uh, than those who, for example, I had a guy who uh, did his first drug at age 30, uh, dropped acid, just decided <laughs> that he was just gonna go for broke and and do that, and um, he is sort of the the picture model of of a responsible drug user. Um, and a lot of people said that they were happy that they started later. Um, and I did encounter a lot of young people who, for various reasons, um, I thought that their usage was problematic, uh, and mostly that stemmed from just a lack of education and proper information about using those drugs. Uh, properly. So when you say problematic drug use, mm. can you define when that, what that really yeah, means? Yeah, I know. I spent like three <laughs> pages of my thesis writing about exactly <laughs> defining that because 
uh, everyone has a different definition. Yeah. And that's actually where it came back to whenever I would ask somebody, like, what do you, what do you, def- how do you find, define abuse? How do you define problematic use? It usually would, they'd respond saying, oh, well, if it interferes with your daily life, if, if as long as you have a job and, you know, your, your family and friends think you're okay, then that's not problematic. Um, it's, there seems to be among drug users a sort of tacit understanding of what's problematic and what's not. I think one of my participants, Daniel, uh, he described it as, oh, I wish I could remember exactly what he said, but it was something like um, when your fun is interfering with somebody else's fun. Like if somebody is, you know, if a, a man is being a, aggressive about t- towards a woman uh, or anything that interferes with the happiness and, and good time of someone else, and that's problematic. But also I would say that uh, it's a sort of personal definition. There's some people who can use drugs every single day, and, and it's fine, and they still feel happy and, and uh, have their jobs and everything. And there's some people who maybe just once a week they use drugs, but it spirals out of control, and then for the rest of the week they're you know feeling depressed or whatever. So it's a very personal definition, I guess. But yeah. So in terms of your research, how would you define um, to categorize your data, I guess? Yeah, well, I mean, the thing with ethnographic research is that we often sort of use the concepts that our participants use. So, you know, for problematic usage, I think I do have a a sort of definition that's based on some of the pre-existing literature that that talks about um, that that sort of subjective definition does... uh, come up in different research with drug users Mm -hmm. but the point is that it's not for anyone else to sort of decide it's like I ask somebody is do you find your your drug use problematic and if they say no who am I to to tell them that it is right but um yeah it's sort of part of is is about challenging the assumptions that all drug use is problematic in the first place because in in a lot of the research that's what it is it's they just assume that as if you're using illegal drugs that that is problematic but it's not. So that's, I mean, the definition of problematic that I'm working with from a lot of the research is so far beyond uh, what is experienced in the real world is like that it just makes it kind of easy to mm-hmm. go against that. So these highly functioning drug users or just regular people really who have this this drug use um, on a regular basis you said that they have really been advocating for harm reduction and helping spread their knowledge and their awareness mm-hmm. of the drugs they're using to other people. Um, mm-hmm. So um, I know that there's some people who really feel that harm reduction is almost like saying, hey, it's okay to do this. Um, what what did your research show about that? Or do you, do you find that this harm reduction model of um, distributing knowledge and... Um, and really seeing what this uh, the drug use is all about is helping, or is it creating a bigger problem? Or what what did you find? Yeah. Um, well, the idea of harm reduction as a sort of value neutral uh, campaign has been really hard won by activists because yeah, it used to be seen as like well, then you're condoning drug usage. Um, but to me, I, I like to use the analogy of you know, um, it's it's a contentious topic, but the reason that 
abortion is legal in Canada is not because abortion is wonderful or that everyone like thinks it's great. It's because we just we know that people are going to do it anyway. So the argument isn't about whether it's good or not. It's about the practical realities of people are going to do that. And so let's make sure that it's safe. And so it's the same thing for harm reduction. It's not condoning it. It's just acknowledging a reality of something that we're not going to be able to just stamp out uh, ever because the human desire for consciousness alteration is pretty much universal. I don't like saying universal. I'm an anthropologist. We should never really use that term, but <laughs> it's, it's damn near close, you know. So, um, yeah. So what I found, though, in terms of what's missing in harm reduction right now is um, the corollary to harm reduction, which is benefit enhancement. So um, this... The way I like to say it is if the way that we taught people to use seatbelts was by telling them, well, you shouldn't drive in the first place. You should just walk. Driving is really dangerous. People die. Like, you can, like, it's horrible. Like, you shouldn't do it. But I guess if you're going to have to drive your selfish death trap, then, you know, use a seatbelt. And it's, it's that kind of language. Like, you can hear how ridiculous that is. But that kind of language, even when it's not explicit, it's implicit in the way that drug users are treated and the way that policy is written around drug users, and it's written without their input a lot of the time. So if we uh, can acknowledge the benefits of drug use, which drug users for years have been talking about, like I had participants who um, did MDMA and were cured of PTSD, uh, did LSD or MDMA and GHB, and um, they stopped being alcoholics, they stopped smoking. They've experienced these really amazing transformations uh, in terms of dealing with pre-existing issues like depression and things like that or just improving themselves and their lives through these drug use particularly psychedelics and if we just ignore all of those realities when we talk about harm reduction then those people are not going to think that the people who are making that policy or, or trying to talk to them about harm reduction have any understanding of the reality of those drugs and so why would they listen to to policy that clearly doesn't reflect what drug use is actually about in its varied ways. Um, so it's really important to acknowledge those benefits and um, teach people how to enhance the benefits of using these drugs at the same time as we're trying to reduce the harm. Wow, that's really cool. <laughs> I, I, I think you're right that that's something that doesn't get talked about mm -hmm. very much because these drugs are illegal. Uh, no one wants thing, to right? celebrate yeah, and, well, the, how great the they are. Is if we admit that they're not that bad, because a lot of these drugs aren't that bad. Um, in fact, a lot of them are, are if you do them properly, are, are perfectly safe and, and beneficial if done under the, the right conditions and with the right pre-existing knowledge. But if we admit that, then we have to start questioning the laws. Then we have to start looking at them and acknowledging that these laws are based on absolutely nothing. And they're based on you know they're they're complicated, but it's racism and and various sort of corporations that got involved early on and all these kinds of things rather than what they say that they're based on, which is you know medical science and everything. So it's a big uh, it's opening up a big can of worms just to acknowledge that these drugs are not as bad as we say they are. Yeah. So um, with with the harm reduction. We are seeing a shift in uh, the culture, or I've started hearing about this shift where um, people are actually looking into what drugs they are taking, making sure that 
maybe that using test kits to make sure that you are taking what you think you're taking. Mm -hmm. And there, I understand there have even been some music festivals or arts festivals which have brought in these test kits and and sort of given them to people, distribute them to people, or and in that same moment when they're testing and helping people. Um, test their drugs. They're also talking to the individuals who are about to take these drugs about them, mm-hmm. how to use them, and things like that. Um, what What is your research turned up about that? Yeah, uh, that's basically the best way to do it. Um, you know, there's festivals. Generally, these are what's called uh, sort of unofficially transformational festivals, and these are festivals that uh, are cooperative. Are um, are you know people go to them for for certain reasons they're not usually advertised they're they're spread through word of mouth um people it's it's like a bunch of hippies basically <laughs> uh, you know um and art project music and all this kind of thing but um those are the festivals at which uh places like shambhala uh well there's harvest festival um and you know burning man and that kind of thing uh shambhala in particular was a great one um in, not was, it still is, in terms of, yeah, providing harm reduction services on site. Now, all of these, and yeah, so all of these festivals, they walk a fine line because they want to provide harm reduction. They want to acknowledge this is what's happening. People are going to use drugs. No matter how hard they try to stomp them out, drugs will find their way into festivals. And so they want to make them safer. But sometimes when these festivals, such as with uh, what happened with Evolve Festival in Nova Scotia this year, they were offering testing services um, so that people can test their drugs and make sure they are what they say they are, which is supposed to prevent death um, and hospitalizations and all that kind of thing. They uh, almost lost their insurance and they had to uh, not provide testing services. That's actually keeping people less safe. But, you know, if they're providing testing services, then that could be seen as tacit approval of drug use and or condoning and law enforcement doesn't like that. So they have all the festivals have to walk this fine line between wanting to help people and also not wanting to be seen as condoning drug use um, and the whole thing's kind of ridiculous because everyone knows that everyone is high <laughs> like it's they're all high and everyone knows even the cops know it i talked to police at events that were like yeah yeah we know everyone's high I'm like yeah it's cool that's why we like working these events because everyone is on mdma and when people are on mdma they're nice and friendly. Nobody's gonna fight. Like it's it's like a love drug. It's. it's I had a cop actually tell me that. And he's like, I love working these events because everyone just wants to hug. <laughs> like, right. No one's gonna start a fight over something. Yeah. Um, so like with alcohol. Exactly. It's alcohol. You go to actually. Yeah. The only fight I saw all summer was at a regular bar, not at one of these <laughs> events. But um, it's true. And you know, I listened to that cop, and at first I thought, oh, that's that's great. You know, like he he's acknowledging what's happening here and. He's okay with it. But then I just started getting angry. And I know it's not his fault. He's just a police officer. But the laws that he's trying to enforce, like, he's not enforcing them because he knows that they're ridiculous. But we're still just going along with these laws. And the laws are enforced unequally between people. Because you can bet that somebody, you know, in downtown Toronto who's a person of color in the wrong neighborhood is not going to get away with smoking a joint in front of a cop the way they would at a festival and that's that's insane. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate because it sounds like the people making the laws and even maybe passing a lot of judgment 
on this culture aren't actually part of the culture at all. Exactly. Um, so what do you think needs to be done in terms of research? Do you think that more research on this topic, um, looking more into these, um, maybe quantifying how helpful harm reduction is, um, how, how would we do that moving forward? Yeah, you know, I've, I've thought about what would be the most helpful thing. And honestly, I've started thinking about just doing a study on why we can't have research-based policy. Because honestly, the research has been done. Like, the, the results are in. Researchers have been talking about this stuff for years, whether it's um, harmful illegal drugs like crack and meth and heroin or, you know, the less harmful stuff. All researchers and healthcare workers and social workers, they've all been saying the same things for years, and yet the policy hasn't changed because politicians, they don't, they're, they're catering to a middle-class audience. so Who, who aren't necessarily yeah, part of so the scene. To, so we really need to work on getting uh, policy based on the research that already exists. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the tricky part. I mean, I think maybe now we'll see a bit of a, a change for the better on that, uh, on these topics. Um, but, yeah. That's so neat. So do you think... Um, moving forward, this is your, your master's degree. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think you'll go on and um, what, what's next for you? Um, well, I am currently writing my PhD applications, uh, frantically and furiously. <laughs> and uh, I'm actually lo- hoping to um, do my PhD work in Mexico and look at the drug war. Oh, yeah. wow. So Wow, I, that's so exciting. Yeah, because the anthropologists, they study all over the world. And I actually lived in Mexico for a year. So I saw some of that stuff firsthand. I speak Spanish. Um, and I'd actually like to know how these policies that are, um, you know, they're, they're created by the U.S., and they're condoned by Canada and other countries for various reasons. Um, and they're killing people in Latin America. It's very serious. Like, we talk about legalization of drugs as if it's just a thing about protecting people up here. But the people are dying because of the policies that we don't think are that big of a deal here. Because, you know, maybe ravers aren't going to jail for drugs, but, you know, the drug war is... People are dying. So I want to go look at the way that um, those things are being affected down there. Sorry. <laughs> um, I'm just curious of how you got into this kind of research. What is your background? What did you do um, that kind of got you into this field? Um, well, there's a... Uh, I like to... So my husband and I, um, we have two different stories that we tell people about how we met. There's the story we tell, like, family and respectable people, and then there's the story that we tell about how we actually got into it. So I kind of have a similar situation in terms of this current project, um, but they're both true. All the different reasons that I got involved in this in this project are true. Uh, and one of them is that I was very interested in uh, issues of HIV-AIDS when I was in my undergrad, and um, I, after doing my undergrad, I took three years off to travel and... Uh, I spent some time volunteering for street outreach with uh, some harm reduction agencies uh, in Victoria, BC, and you know saw um, street drug use uh, firsthand. And when I came back to Ontario to do my master's, I was originally, you know, I, I started talking to harm reduction agencies around here. And when I talked to um, some people who were doing harm reduction in the rave, rave scene in Toronto and hearing about how just in the last two or three years this MDMA issue uh, has exploded. It just, I thought, yeah, that's 
you know, it's a little different from the injection drug users that I used to be working with, but this is uh, something that's a bit closer to home. So uh, in terms of my, my love for festivals and, and music and all that kind of thing. So, yeah. That's so great. Yeah, it was fun. <laughs> Lots of great stories for my field work. So um, I think we, we just have a few more minutes um, to uh, wrap up this interview, but um, is there anything that um, you'd like to say or... Or maybe I can ask if there's anyone, that, our listeners, if they want to be involved with kind of raising awareness or or doing something for the community, how can they get involved or what should, steps should they take? Yeah, well, uh, in terms of volunteering for harm reduction in, in the sort of rave scene, there's um, TRIP does great work. Uh, in London, there's actually not, despite uh, growing amounts of events that are happening here, there's there's nothing here, but there is the um, HIV AIDS coalition in London to help out with uh, street drug users. But there's a lot of online work that's being done, and I would encourage people to check out uh, MAPS, uh, which is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, if they're interested in sort of that benefit enhancement of psychedelic studies. That's all we got for this week. If you like this episode, share it with someone. Check us all out on Twitter and Facebook. Both you can find through Gradcast Radio. You can go to our website to see more episodes at gradcastradio.ca. And if you want to come on the show and talk about your own research, great line for your CV, go to gradcastradio at gmail.com. The theme is Happy Boy by Kevin McLeod, and we will see you guys next time.